according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our God, through the cross of Jesus Christ, has made a difference in our lives. It fundamentally changes every single thing about us. This living hope that he's called us to. Uh, He has given us a new life, a transformation as powerful, as revolutionary, as different as death to life, as the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the power that lives in us that has changed our hearts as those who are believers in Jesus Christ is the power that raised Christ from the dead. It fundamentally changes everything about who we are, including fundamentally bringing us into a new community of all those who have been given this living hope. Flip over to 1 Peter chapter 2 and see this in verse 4. As you come to him, Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, as those who have been transformed by the living hope of the gospel, God is building each one of us together into a temple, the place where the Holy Spirit of God dwells, the place where God is worshipped. The the temple is no longer in a, a physical location. The temple is the people, and we together brick by brick, are being built together as a temple. As a spiritual house. To be a royal priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices of worship that are acceptable not because of anything that we are, but acceptable because of Jesus Christ. And it is as this temple that we live life together. To be in Christ is to be part of a family, an eternal family, a new community, unlike anything that we could be a part of outside of Christ. Uh, Hold a finger in 1 Peter 2 and flip back with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We are ending today a series called Life Together based on Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, in which we see the life of... Thank you, Siri. I'll just let Siri tell you what Acts 2, 42 to 47 is all about. Um, let's turn this off. Yep. Okay, thank you. If, if y'all want to say amen, that's fine, but I'm not going to let Siri say amen anymore. So in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, we get a glimpse of the life of the first church in Jerusalem. And we've been learning from this passage and then from other passages that this passage has led us to about how we as a church can reflect the gospel and live out the community life as a church that God intends for us. And so we have seen in this Life Together series a number of topics, a number, number of aspects of our life together. Uh, the first week uh, was kicked off by Dr. Joe Kreider answering the question, why do we gather, considering the topic of gathered worship. We see the church in Acts chapter 2 gathering together. We looked at 
the topic of teaching from 2 Timothy 3 through 4 and the importance of devoting ourselves to teaching, uh, the, the teaching of Scripture as a church. We looked at the grace of giving from 2 Corinthians 8. We looked at baptism from Romans chapter 6. We looked at the Lord's Supper from 1 Corinthians 11. We looked at prayer, praying in the plural from Matthew 6. Last week, we looked at the, the topic of church membership. And we had a particularly inward focus as we were uh, considering that. Uh, that the, those who make up the, the membership of a church are, are those who uh, make a confession. They confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And that's what makes them distinct from the world. Those inside the church have the authority given to them by God to determine who is in and who is out of the church uh, in terms of membership. It's authority to affirm, not authority to create. Uh, To unpack that, you can go and listen to last week. Those inside the church have a responsibility to one another, to love one another, to live in, uh, in harmony and unity inside the church. And the health of the church inside bears witness to the world on the outside of the truth and the beauty of the gospel. And for this last week, as we conclude the series, we're going to shift our focus from that inward perspective to outwardness. Outwardness. That's the topic that we're going to look at today. And and I get that idea from the last two verses of Acts chapter 2. Look with me at verses 46 and 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So I want you to notice a couple of things. Notice that as the Lord is adding to their number day by day those who are being saved, clearly evangelism is happening among this congregation. And that is part of outwardness. It's those inside preaching the message of the gospel to those outside of the church. But notice there's more to their outwardness than just evangelism. Look at that phrase in verse 47, having favor with all the people. It was not just their words that were outwardly focused. It was their actions. It was their lifestyle, the way that they lived in relationship to the rest of the world. And so that's why I chose carefully this, I, this term outward, uh, because it encompasses more than just our words. It encompasses our actions. And we're going to focus our attention today on outwardness. With that, let's turn back to 1 Peter chapter 2, because that's where our text is found for this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read verses 11 and 12. Would you stand with me in honor of the word of God? Let's read together. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God 
on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So there is a famous quote, maybe I should say an infamous quote. It's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, although he didn't say it, but it's attributed to him, and it goes something like this. Preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. Maybe that sounds kind of nice on first listen, but this quote has been criticized a lot, and rightly so, because it suggests that it's possible to preach the gospel without using words. And that's nonsense. The message of the gospel is verbal. It contains truth. You have to proclaim it for it to be heard. If there's no verbal proclamation of the gospel, there's nothing to be believed, and people cannot get saved. And while that quote has been rightly criticized, it's important in criticizing it that we don't go to the opposite extreme and think that the only thing that matters is preaching the gospel verbally. It's important that we don't go to the opposite extreme and think that the only thing we need to do is talk the talk as if walking the walk didn't matter. It's true that our conduct alone cannot communicate the truth of the gospel. But we cannot underestimate how much the Bible places importance on the fact of how loudly our actions speak. So here is the sermon in a, in a, a sentence. And we're going to walk through the text and walk through this sentence together. Here's, I think, my, so this was the inspired word of God. Here is Jeff's uninspired one-sentence summary of this inspired text. As citizens of heaven, we should not live worldly lives. We should live heavenly lives before the world so more citizens of the world become citizens of heaven. Okay, can you repeat that after me? I'm just kidding. Let me, let me read that one more time. We'll walk through it phrase by phrase. But let me just re- read this one more time. And I hope you see the sense of this text embedded in this sentence. As citizens of heaven, we should not live worldly lives. We should live heavenly lives before the world. So more citizens of the world become citizens of heaven. Let's walk through this text and unpack this sentence. That first phrase, as citizens of heaven. Let's consider this truth. Look at verse 11 in the first part. Peter refers to Christians as sojourners and exiles. Sojourners. And exiles. That's who we are. As Christians. We are sojourners and exiles. Well, what are sojourners and exiles? They're people who live in a country that is not their home. Do you realize that's who we are as Christians? 
were people who are not living in our home. In this world, you and I are foreigners if we are believers in Jesus Christ. Well, then what is our home? Well, look back with me at verses 9 and 10 of 1 Peter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. When we trusted in Christ, we became part of a holy nation. A nation that is not of this world. A nation whose borders you cannot find on this planet. But a nation whose citizens are all across the globe. The people of God in Christ are God's holy nation. Our home is not on this earth anymore. Our home is in heaven. These are terms that used to refer only to the nation of Israel, God's covenant people, the chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession. But now these are terms that apply to all of those who trust in Christ. It's not bound by uh, ethnicity. It's not bound by geography. It is only tied up in Christ. Our citizenship is in Christ. Our home is in Christ. Before we knew Christ, we weren't a people. We didn't belong to this holy nation. In fact, we were enemies of the king of this kingdom. We were rebels against God, against his people. We needed mercy, and we hadn't received it. But when we trusted in Christ, we received God's mercy. We are those now who have received the kindness of God that we desperately needed as rebels. In Christ, we've received mercy because Jesus himself, the king of this kingdom, was executed for our treason. And not only that, he was exalted to the throne. He was resurrected and exalted to the highest throne so that all who trust in this king can be brought in to the kingdom of God and become citizens of this kingdom. Uh, flip over with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 13, says this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. When you trusted in Jesus, your nationality changed. You were redeemed out of the world. You were redeemed out of citizenship in this world that's cursed by sin. 
by the cross of Jesus, you were forgiven of your rebellion against the king. And you were naturalized as a citizen of heaven. So remember, if we are to live outwardly as a church in the way that God wants us to, the first thing we need to do is remember you don't belong here. You don't belong here. And the closer that we get to Jesus, the more our hearts are aligned with the king of our home country, the more homeless we'll feel living here on earth. The more we'll feel, this, this is not a place that I belong. Not only that, but the closer that we get to King Jesus, the more homesick we'll get for our home in heaven. The more that we remember that we don't belong here, the more that we embrace our citizenship in heaven, the less we'll embrace the customs of this world, the less we'll embrace the practices of this world, the less we'll embrace the lifestyle of this world, and the more we'll live in loyalty to our king, even as sojourners and exiles in this world. And that is exactly where Peter takes us next. He says, as sojourners and exiles, and then he goes on from there. So, Again, that sentence summary that I offered. The first phrase is, as citizens of heaven. And the next is, we should not live worldly lives. As citizens of heaven, we should not live worldly lives. And I get that from that next phrase in verse 11. Peter says, we are to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. The essence of sin is just doing whatever our flesh wants to do. It's giving in to our desires. These are desires that we were all born with in our sinful nature as human beings. And the key in this text is that they are desires, these fleshly lusts or sinful desires are the things that the world indulges in. Far from abstaining from the passions of the flesh, the way of the world is to indulge in the passions of the flesh. To do whatever my flesh wants to do. The normal cultural status quo of this world that we are walking through as sojourners and exiles is to indulge in the passions of the flesh. The status quo is I I'm going to defend my rights so I can be free to do what I want to do. It's all about me and my flesh and being able to indulge my fleshly lusts. But remember, we do not belong here. We are not citizens of the world. We are sojourners and exiles. And according to Peter, Christians say no when the world says yes. Citizens of heaven say no to the things that the citizens of the world say yes to. Uh, flip with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, 
I believe the youth were in this passage uh, this past week on Wednesday night. Look at verse 15. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Those who have been transformed by the death and resurrection of Jesus live for him who died for us and who was raised. So when the world says, follow your heart, we say, I've decided to follow Jesus. When the world says, do what makes you happy, we say, my joy is to please the one who died for me. When the world says, do what feels right, we say, what does God's word say? Why? What's the big deal? What's so significant that we should abstain from doing what we want to do? Well, here's how high the stakes are. Peter says we are to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And look at that phrase. The passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. We abstain from the passions of the flesh because the passions of your flesh want you dead. They want to kill you. When your fleshly desires win, your soul loses. The victory of the passions of the flesh is the defeat of your soul. And so we must not flirt with the passions of our flesh. We must wage war against those things that are waging war against our soul. And in order to do that, we need to guard ourselves against our enemy's tactics. Here's just a couple. One of the tactics of the flesh as it wages war against our soul and wants to get us to indulge in the passions of our flesh is disguise. Disguise. It takes on at least a couple of forms. Sometimes the passions of our flesh disguise themselves in principle. As if there's this principle that anyone would agree is right, and so therefore I'm going to do this, but really underneath there's just a passion of the flesh that's hiding behind that excuse, and you're indulging in it behind the disguise of principle. So for instance, oh, I believe it's my right to do this thing. Or it can't be wrong if I feel it sincerely. As if that principle justifies it. When really behind, it's just a way to indulge in a passion of the flesh. One of the most dangerous things for Christians, in terms of the way that the passions of our flesh disguise themselves to get us to indulge in them, is when they disguise themselves in religious language. Well, I prayed about it, So that's why I did it. As if praying about it sanctifies it. Or, well, the Spirit told me to. Well, if God's Word told you not to, then the Spirit did not tell you to do that thing. But we can spiritualize sin by using these phrases that are really just our passions, the passions of our flesh, disguising themselves in religious language in order 
to get us to indulge. And how do we guard ourselves against those things? By sticking close to the word of God. You can identify a counterfeit by knowing the real thing. So one of the enemy's tactics is to disguise. Um, Another tactic of the enemy is discipleship. Now, what I don't mean is disciple, uh, being discipled as a follower of Jesus. But what I mean is that the passions of our flesh will want us to be discipled, to become followers of other people who are following or indulging in the passions of their flesh. If we are to abstain from the passions of our flesh, then we must not allow ourselves to be discipled by social media. But too often... We just give ourselves to social media and without knowing it, because of just the sheer volume of time, because of our um, willingness to believe what we want to hear, we allow ourselves to be discipled by social media more than by Jesus Christ. We must not be discipled by cable news. We must not be discipled by our unbelieving friends, unbelieving family. We must not be discipled by YouTube. We must not be discipled by entertainment like TV and movies. These things aren't bad in and of themselves. Social media, cable news, friends, family, YouTube, TV, movies, those things aren't bad. But when we give ourselves over to them to be discipled by them, we become like what we behold. And if we are to guard ourselves against the passions of our flesh, we must not be discipled by these things. We instead must keep our guard up and be discipled only by Jesus Christ. So as citizens of heaven, we should not live worldly lives. That's, not, that's what we should not do. Well, then what should we do? We should live heavenly lives before the world. We should live heavenly lives before the world. Look at the first part of verse 12. So he just said to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And then here's the positive side of this. Verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that term Gentiles refers to the world. Uh, So just like in uh, verse 9, whenever Peter was using these phrases that were once associated strictly with the the nation of Israel under the old covenant, holy nation, royal priesthood. Uh, So that those outside of uh, the the nation of Israel, those outside of God's people were the Gentiles, the nations of the world. Well, he's using this phrase again uh, to refer to all unbelievers, uh, no matter what their ethnicity, all the nations outside of God's holy nation in Christ, he's referring to as the Gentiles. So we could say, keep your conduct in the world honorable. Keep your conduct among the world honorable. Observe a couple of things about what Peter says here. First of all, the Bible envisions us living among the Gentiles. Living among the world. Now, we are to be distinct from the world, but it was never God's intent for us to be isolated from the world. The Bible envisions us living in and among the Gentiles as sojourners and exiles. Notice also, not only are we to live among the Gentiles, we're to be sensitive to how they perceive us. 
It's not like we're just supposed to walk around living life saying, I don't care what anyone thinks. No, we're actually supposed to care how we are perceived by the world around us. Now, to be clear, that does not mean that we should live to please the world. By no means. After all, again, the way of the world is indulging the passions of the flesh. And Peter has just told us that the way of sojourners and exiles is to abstain from the passions of our flesh. So it can't possibly mean that we live to please the Gentiles, the world around us. No, what it means to live honorably among the Gentiles is to live in a visibly godly way. And this is confirmed if we look back at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. Peter writes, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. As sojourners and exiles, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, the life that we are to live before the watching world among the Gentiles is one of holiness, godliness. We have a responsibility and a privilege and an opportunity to show the world what God is like by our holiness, by our godliness, by our honorable conduct. Peter says. Now the key here, the key here is that by living honorably, the goal is to show our citizenship to the glory of God, not for our own glory. We aren't to live honorably so that the world is like, wow, those are good people. Wow, those people have really made something of themselves. Wow, those people are really pious and self-righteous. No, no, no. The point is to point to the gospel. The point is to point to the difference that God has made in us. The point of our good deeds are, is uh, like we saw in Psalm 105, uh, to tell of God's wonderful deeds to the nations. We are to, through our good deeds, point to the one who delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. So what it means to be a sojourner and a exile throughout this world. If you've ever traveled uh, to another country, you may have experienced what it's like to even temporarily be a sojourner or um, a stranger, a foreigner. And you know, it can vary depending on the country, whether it's a positive thing or a negative thing. You know, when you, you do something, you say something that you don't realize is unique to Americans, you just think it's normal, but it's only until you're in that other culture that you realize, oh, this is unique. You do something and somebody says, oh, Americans. And that can be, again, positive or negative. There's some countries where they see a uniquely American thing and they want to be exactly like it. And it's almost like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like there's, it's, just, it's just us. Like you, you do you. But then there's other places where there's sort of an arrogant attitude toward like, oh, Americans, they don't know better. The point is not that we are to please the world. The point is that we are to show off what it means to be, un- what the unique characteristics of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. Such that the world, whether positively or negative, says, oh, Christians. Well, 
So what is the purpose of that? What's the purpose of living heavenly lives before the world? So that more citizens of the world become citizens of heaven. So more citizens of the world become citizens of heaven. Look at the last part of verse 12. Well, look at the whole thing. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that, okay, so here's the purpose of keeping our conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Again, we see really clearly here the goal is not to please the world. In fact, favor is not guaranteed. It may be that we live honorably and the world speaks against us as evildoers. But you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Turn with me there to Matthew chapter 5. Look at verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It may be that we live honorably and people still revile us and speak all kinds of evil against, you, against us falsely on our account. And if we are living honorably, then it will be false. Because when they speak evil against us and it's true, the salt has lost its saltiness. The difference that God has made in our hearts is no longer shown off. We're not seen to be different from the world. But... When we allow the Spirit of God to control us, our light of good works shines off in the darkness of the world, not, again, for our glory, but so that people may be drawn to the God who has made a difference in our lives. Living honorably, living holy, shines a light. Peter goes on in chapter 2 and chapter 3 to give some examples of what this looks like to live honorably among the Gentiles in such a way that leads them to glorify God. Look with me at verses 13 to 15 of chapter 2 of 1 Peter. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So Peter envisions here sojourners and exiles and citizens of this world all living together under human government 
in this world. And the goal is for sojourners and exiles, even though we're citizens of heaven, to submit to the human government that God has placed over us in such a way that when people accuse us of disobedience, they're silenced by our integrity. You know, this year, we have been given new ways to submit to the government than we even had before. And as we desire to live as sojourners and exiles in the world around us, specifically in in our culture, I want you to think about this. In our culture, the way of the world is to indulge in the passions of the flesh, to do whatever the flesh wants to do. Our culture, the world around us, particularly in our community, not only accepts certain forms of disobeying the government, it actually is taboo to obey the government in certain ways. Our responsibility as sojourners and exiles is to be subject to those government authorities over us, even when it's unpopular in the world around us, for whose sake? For the Lord's sake, Peter says in verse 13. Let me ask you, do you submit in such a way that your integrity would silence those who accuse you of disobedience? The goal is to live honorably among the Gentiles so that they would see our good deeds and glorify God. Look with me at verses 18 and 19. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Again, Peter envisions sojourners and exiles having employment in the world. Now, Thankfully, in our society, we don't have slaves and masters like this, but the principle absolutely applies to, in fact, if it applies to this, all the more it applies to employees and employers. Peter envisions a Christian employee living as a sojourner and an exile submitting to the boss, the manager, the supervisor above him, not only when the boss is a good guy, not only when the boss treats him fairly, but even the unjust. Why? So that he may see your good deeds and glorify God. Do you, in your workplace, submit to your authorities like a sojourner in such a way that your boss says, what? Even when I give him a hard time, he's doing what I'm asking him to do. Or do you respond to your employer the same way all the citizens of the world you work with also respond, such that your boss wouldn't see a difference between a sojourner or a citizen of the world? The goal is that we would live honorably among the Gentiles so that even when they speak against us as evildoers, 
they're silenced by our good deeds, not for our glory, but for the glory of God. Not because we're trying to be mindful of ourselves, but because we're trying to be mindful of God. One last example in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, Gentiles, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Again, we're, we're coming full circle here. Notice that phrase, one without a word. Again, the conduct is not sufficient to preach the truth of the gospel. But in some sense, a person can be one to the Lord without a word, according to Peter. Do you preach the gospel without your words or only in your words? Notice, again, the goal is that the watching world would one day glorify God. The watching world is watching in all sorts of different relationships. Sometimes, like in chapter 3 here, the watching world is watching in our home, in a marriage even. Sometimes the world is watching in our workplace. Sometimes the world is watching because part of the world is our boss. The world is watching in our community. As we either submit to the government or don't. Uh, the world is watching in all these different arenas of life. In the home, in the workplace, in our community. All over the place as we live as sojourners and exiles among the Gentiles. And the goal should be that the watching world would see our good deeds. And would one day glorify God. Even if today they're just speaking falsely speaking evil falsely against us, even if today they're reviling us, even if today they're speaking against us as evildoers, as Peter says here in chapter 2. The goal is that we would be faithful over the long haul with good deeds so that one day, in fact, on the last day, the day of visitation, the day that Jesus returns, that those people, even the ones who are speaking evil against us, the ones who saw our good deeds, would join us that day in glorifying God. The goal is that they would be drawn not to us because of our good deeds, but that they would be drawn to the God behind our good deeds. The God who is the reason for our good deeds. That they would see our good deeds and that they may one day ask, as Peter says, for the reason for the hope within us. That our good deeds would afford us an opportunity to speak the gospel with the necessary words of the gospel. So that they might hear the good news that we have been speaking without a word by our conduct. So that they might hear the good news, believe the good news, and that they too might be transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son and out of the domain of darkness. So that on that last day, they may glorify God with us. As fellow citizens. As citizens of heaven. We should not live worldly lives. We should live heavenly lives. Before the world. So more citizens of the world. Become citizens of heaven. That's why we care about outwardness. That's why we care about why, what the world sees. That's why we care about how we live among the Gentiles, so that more citizens of the world would become citizens 
of heaven. So, yes, by all means, preach the gospel and use words. They're necessary. Just don't stop there. Let's adorn the gospel, as Paul says to Titus. Let's adorn the gospel by remembering that we're sojourners and exiles, that this world is not our home. Let's adorn the gospel by abstaining from the passions of our flesh, even when we're tempted to justify them in various ways. Let's adorn the gospel by keeping our conduct honorable among the Gentiles. And all of that so that when the world around us hears the words of the gospel and sees the fruit of the gospel, they may glorify God with us on the last day. Let's not just proclaim the gospel. Let's also display the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, you delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Lord, I pray that that radical transformation, the transformation of our heart, the transformation of our citizenship, the transformation of our eternity would transform our conduct before a watching world so that more citizens of the world would be drawn to you and that by your grace, you would make them citizens of heaven. Lord, use us Though imperfectly, though inconsistently, use us, Lord, for your glory and the building up of your church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.